This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So we're in the midst of a series on action, ethics, and the five precepts. And I've actually been excited about this particular series because although I believe I generally include ethics and virtue practices in my teachings on a relatively regular basis, I actually very rarely separate each one out and write a talk for each precept. And because we have this series coming up, it gave me the occasion to do so. So tonight, the talk is on restraint, on generosity, and the commitment to not steal. And this is the second ethical precept, which is to refrain from stealing. Adinadana veramani sikapadam samadhyami. So it, in English would mean, I undertake the training of refraining from taking that which is not given. Perhaps this precept might be fairly easy for most of you to practice because we generally respect each other's possessions. But I think we can refine our work with this precept to unravel a rather subtle tendency, perhaps, to take what we have an urge or desire to have. All unenlightened people want. They want things. In fact, if we look at our actions and we look at our speech, we'll find that much of what we do and what we say is in order to get something, maybe grossly or subtly. And sure, we usually try and satisfy our desires without outright stealing. But what do people do when they can't get what they want through the conventionally acceptable methods, which is usually some kind of an exchange of money or services for the desired goods? When we all experience some degree of desire and craving, we have to consider how we handle those impulses that want something. Usually we learn not to steal when we're very young. Most parents teach their children rather diligently. They scold their kids if they grab the candy off the shelf in the store or if the child comes home with somebody else's toys from preschool. You know, they get a little lesson and have to go return it. We learn the conventional boundaries around ownership. I think this is a very normal part of growing up and it helps us to curb selfish impulses because we learned to recognize the boundaries around my stuff and somebody else's stuff and therefore we learn to inhibit the craving for somebody else's stuff. I can remember a time when I was maybe maybe 10 years old or so maybe 10 or 12, my family went on a camping trip to the Grand Canyon and Bryce Canyon and Zion National Park through Utah and Arizona. Has anybody been there? Has anybody not been there? Well, you're from Israel, so... (laughs) Right? I thought so. If you're here long enough, go to... I liked Zion the best. It was amazing. 
absolutely amazing. Zion National Park in Utah. But there's also Bryce Canyon and Grand Canyon, which of course is the grandest. When my family was at the Grand Canyon, we were stopping at one of the, you drive around and you stop at various lookouts, you know, looking out and taking pictures and walking around and taking little hikes. And on one of these lookouts, these parking areas where you look out over the Grand Canyon. We were the last car to leave the the lookout. And there was this big luggage, kind of like a duffel bag, filled with lenses and cameras and tripods and really good photography equipment. And I had a very strong interest in photography at that period of my youth. And I wanted to keep them. But my parents said, no, no, no. And instead, we had to go back into the park and find a ranger station and return them to the lost and found. And I remember hoping and hoping and hoping that nobody would claim them because I was told if nobody claimed them after a certain number of days, we would be able to claim them. But I was so disappointed when we got in the mail a thank you letter. from another family who had been reunited with their stuff and all those cool lenses. But I'm sure my parents did it partly to make it a clear lesson. In the simile of the snake in the Middle Link Discourses, the Buddha said that whatever is not yours, abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. Okay, he wasn't talking about tripods and camera lenses because he then asked, and what is it that's not yours? And it wasn't a possession here or a possession there. He said, material form is not yours, the body, materiality. Abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. Feeling is not yours. Perception is not yours. Formations are not yours. Consciousness is not yours. Abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. And then he uses an example of saying, what do you think if somebody was to go into the forest and carry off sticks and grass and branches and leaves and burn them? Would you feel like they were carrying things, that they were hurting you? Were they burning you? And he says, no, because we don't take that to be self. But if somebody offends our feelings, our perceptions, our mental formations, our consciousness, or our body, then we react very strongly because we're attached to that. But in an ultimate sense, nothing belongs to us. So he encourages the monastics, to think of their bodies, to think of their feelings, their perceptions, their mental formations, much like leaves and branches and twigs, something that they would not possess. Because even our bodies, even our feelings and perceptions, they can't really be clung to. They can't be controlled. No matter how well we eat, no matter how diligently we go to the gym, we still get sick, we age, we die. Possessiveness is a delusion. There's nothing that we have that is really under our control. Nevertheless, we still must understand what conventionally belongs to us and what is the possession of an other, even though we know that nothing belongs to us truly and really nothing can be possessed. We still conventionally have to know what's mine and what's yours. When you borrow a tool from a friend or a neighbor, are you careful to return it in a timely manner? What about books? What about all the various little things that we exchange and share? There's a wonderful uh, Buddhist study center in Barrie, Barrie Center for Buddhist Studies, Barrie, Massachusetts. And for many years, their entire collection practically, except a few dictionaries and resource books, almost their entire collection was available for circulation. 
Anybody could just walk in the building, peruse the library, find some books that you wanted to, to read, sign it out with your name, address, and phone number, and then take the book away. Take it home and read it. You could get on a plane. I used to get on a plane with it, come back to California, read the book, and then mail it back. They were very, very open with their collection, trusting the people that meditated would value it and also want somebody else to be able to read it. But it didn't work. They lost too many books. And I talked to one volunteer who spent a summer volunteering there trying to contact everybody who they had a name and an address and a phone number for because they had signed out a book, but the book was never returned. And she said almost nobody replied. Nobody responded to her requests. I think it's kind of sad because they still have a lovely collection that they've replenished, but now you have to read it on the property. So I think even within meditators, even with people who hold, who I believe take these precepts and hold them dearly, I think we still can refine the precepts and not be too casual with possessions. If we take out a loan, we can consider repaying it fairly promptly, even if it's just five bucks that we borrowed from a friend at a coffee shop because we didn't you know, have enough cash that day. I don't think anybody intends to steal money from their friends. I just think we don't take it so seriously and we forget. So maybe we should give ourselves a note. Maybe we should send ourselves a message so that we can remember these things. Sometimes it happens that we're in a store and the cashier gives us more change than we're due. Has that ever happened to you? What do you do? Do you give it back? Many people give it back when they're right there, but sometimes we get all the way out to the car and then we realize, huh, this isn't quite right. I got five extra dollars. Do you turn around and walk back? Well, what if it's only five cents? Is it worth the walk? How do you decide? And when you give it back, are you happy to give it back? We can think of times when we wanted something, when that urge to have, that urge to take arose, but we didn't act on it. These are powerful moments. Maybe you're signing a check in a store or something, and the clerk has a really cool pen that feels really good in your hand and is really smooth. And there's that urge to just sort of you know, put it in your pocket along with your checkbook. But you don't. You don't. Maybe you're walking through the grocery store and you're hungry. And so you, you pick up a piece of fruit, an apple or something, and you eat it. And it's gone by the time you get to the checkout register. Do you can tell them, oh yes, charge me the weight for one more apple, please. Sometimes we want to hide the fact that we consumed it. And other times we want to just bring it forward and keep it really clean and really clear. Pay for it honestly, which feels better. Recognizing that we have the ability to refrain from taking, even when there's the desire to have, even when we think we can easily get away with it, is a source for many, many of us of great peace and happiness, self-respect and self-esteem. We can see this in many different things that are rather innocuous socially. You know, it's like no big deal. But if we want to heighten our sense of sufficiency and self-esteem, then we can notice them. This happens on almost every retreat, that somebody wanders into the kitchen and grazes a little bit from the pantry. Fair enough. I mean, people get, get hungry. They get hungry during the retreat. And maybe it's a little frustrating in the meditation and it's between meals or it's late at night. And they just wander into the pantry looking for something tasty. Or some of the people who are doing late night yogi jobs might 
find something just a little too tempting that's on the shelves, thinking, oh, well, I'll just take my portion now, and then whenever it's served, I'll take less. But often when that happens, there's this inner feeling like we hope nobody's looking. You know, When we have that sense, oh, I hope nobody's looking, there's a little bit of shame. We know that it's not quite right. I don't think we need to berate ourselves that the desire arose, but I think we can be very happy and glad when we refrain. Because it's the action of restraint that brings joy. I've had the privilege of house-sitting very frequently for friends. And I really appreciate that they considered me trustworthy to be a custodian of their homes, to be a custodian of their possessions and belongings. But even if we're not in somebody else's home, we're often around other people's things. I mean, my income is sitting on a basket, you know, twice a week. It's just sort of out there. And I have to put trust in people, trust that the money goes in and doesn't come out. (laughs) And I think this kind of a practice, in many places now, even the dana is, is in boxes with little slits. It's okay. But I have to admit, I still do like the baskets, especially when we live in a world with so much security and locks and gates and alarms. Not taking what's not given is still a dominant cultural value especially within meditation groups. But I think it's more generally true as well. When I was at Gaia House, a meditation center in England, there was a a bulletin board, and on one retreat, somebody had found a gold ring. And so they posted it on a... They hung it on a little pin you know, a thumbtack on the bulletin board with a note that said, found, does this belong to you? And just left it there, figuring that the hundred people that were in the retreat center would all wander by and the right person would take it. And it didn't occur to me that anybody but the right person would take it. This is a bit of a contrast to many of the places that I've practiced in Asia, where in some places, both because of poverty and because of different cultural norms, it was really necessary to have locks and bars on the windows. Um, Even if we put chairs outside or tables outside, they would need to be secured and bolted down or they'd be stolen. There were, even where we would hang laundry, in some of the monasteries where you'd hang the laundry, would be kind of hidden behind some buildings just so that it didn't, you know, wasn't an aesthetic thing for the, for the monastery. But the wall behind it had glass shards in it to keep people from climbing over to steal things, even though about the only things that were available to steal was laundry and a few toilet buckets. But those would disappear if there wasn't some degree of protection. It was fairly common where I lived in India that all the gardens, private gardens, didn't have just a front yard. There was a front yard with a high gate with a lock on it and sometimes pokey things on the top of the gate. It was still possible to climb over the gate, but one had to work kind of hard to do that. And it was done in order to protect the trees. Because if it wasn't, if it was exposed, then, then villagers would come and cut the wood or take the food from the garden or just, you know, take what they wanted or what they needed. So I think we live in a, in a different situation here. As we practice the Dhamma, we're cultivating wholesome states. And actions that we undertake are considered to be associated with some root 
um, greed or non-greed, hate or non-hate, delusion or non-delusion. And whichever root they're associated with gives us a clue as to what the comma that will come from that action may be. So if we do an action out of non-greed with an aspiration for awakening, it's going to have very wholesome comma. But if we do an action out of hatred, it will have unwholesome comma. One of my teachers um, would encourage us to link our wholesome action with an aspiration for awakening. And he said, when you do a, a wholesome deed, you should think, may this action be a contributing cause for the realization of Nibbana. And it might sound now a little greedy to do a good deed for one's self-benefit, you know, for just gain spiritual benefit. But the meaning that's intended here is deeper. It's a strategy to bolster our capacity for restraint so that we grow the capacity for restraint in accordance with these laws of kama. We bring then simple acts right into the spiritual path. Is your commitment to refrain from stealing strong enough to be an inspiring support for your meditation practice? Is your commitment to not take vivid enough that when you think of restraining from taking, when you think of not stealing, that what arises is non-remorse, gladness, concentration, happiness, joy, to know that that precept is really clean for you. When you reflect on the precept, is that reflection a source of happiness and joy, or does it bring a little bit of dis-ease or discomfort? I think it's really worth cleaning up our act so thoroughly that the thought of each precept provides joy and a deep resting place for the mind so that with the thought of any of the precepts, the mind is free from guilt, it's free from remorse, it's free from fear. If we think about the precepts, though, and think of the past and realize that we've done something in the past that really breached those precepts, then we make amends to whatever extent is possible. And then we start afresh. We recommit and start new. I had a good friend who I met later in his life. And when he was a youth, yeah, kind of young, maybe a late teens, early 20s. He got involved with the woman that his parents didn't want him involved with, and it caused a big schism kind of trouble in the family, and he walked out. Well, they kind of threw him out. He kind of walked out. It's kind of hard to know in one of those family arguments. But in any case, he left, and he was kind of cut off from financial resources at an age when he had very little of his own. And he ended up leaving that country and going to another country <laughs> where he was even further from family and resources. And he had a really hard time for a number of years taking, you know, managing and taking care of the financial details of this new family life. And there were times when he was, to, just to manage to get through the week, he had to, you know, dumpster dive and eat out of the, the trash cans and stuff. It was not easy for him, not easy at all. But after a while, he did succeed financially. He got his material life together. He developed a spiritual path and then traveled on to India and Asia and continued his practice there. And when he was meditating, and he, this, there was a, a weight, a burden from these acts um, of taking, of stealing that he had done. Because he had, during those difficult years, he would sometimes borrow money from friends and acquaintances with no intention whatsoever of paying them back. And the thought of all the people that he had taken things from that really weren't given or that something that was given as a loan and then he took and then disappeared was a burden for him. So he 
made an effort to go back and to find the people. And if they had already passed away, to find their children or their heirs. And to pay back the loans. (laughs) To give back the gift to make amends in some way or other. And I thought this was a really explicit act. And it may be that we don't have something quite as explicit to do, but if there is something that you find is a burden when you think of the precept, do something. Do something to release that burden, to make a change. I think AA groups understand really well the importance of making amends. But even if we're not an alcoholic, we've probably all succumbed at some time or another to the force of craving. In the Samyutta Nikaya, in the conch blower discourse, the Buddha acknowledges that basically everybody has broken the precepts. The discourse says, In many ways the Blessed One criticizes and censures the taking of what is not given. And he says, Abstain from taking what is not given. And then the monk thinks, Now I have taken what is not given to such and such an extent. That wasn't proper. That wasn't good. But though I feel regret over this, that evil deed of mine cannot be undone, having reflected thus. He abandons the taking of what is not given and he abstains from taking what is not given in the future. Thus there comes about the abandoning of that evil deed. Thus there comes about the transcending of that evil deed. So the the Buddhist teachings give us a system for reflecting and for transforming, for changing. If you recognize that you're affected by regret, by remorse, then consider what the error was, and see if you can face that error without the slightest self-condemnation or self-hatred, but simply recognize that was not a good thing to do. Make amends if it's possible, and then recommit to maintain the precepts more cleanly in the future. See what it takes to curb the impulse to take what does not belong to us. Shoplifting is one example to consider because in stores, they lay out their displays of items in order to stimulate desire, in order to make you want it. it things appear as tantalizing and as attractive as possible. But most people do abide by the conventions of picking up an item, putting it in the shopping cart, and paying for it before walking out of the store. But there are some people who can't resist the temptation to steal. When somebody is motivated to steal, we know what that motivation usually is some form of greed. But what is the motivation to not steal? Do we not take, say we still feel the desire to have something and we don't have enough money to buy it that day. What keeps us from taking it? Is it out of fear of punishment? Is there a desire to not feel greedy, to not feel needy? Are we practicing restraint because we know that it's a contributing cause for the ending of suffering, because we know that it is an unwholesome act and we don't want to engage in unwholesome acts, because we have a profound commitment to a spiritual life. It sounds so simple because we were trained so young not to steal, not to take things. But actually that ability to refrain is supported by other wholesome states. In Pali, Hiri and Otapa are among the two guardians, conscience and concern, shame or fear of wrongdoing, moral shame, moral dread. These are the various translations. They're called the guardians of the world. They're the supportive inner forces that enable us to bring our actions in alignment with what we know is right and good. Moral shame is based 
on the inner self-respect that senses that doing an unwholesome deed is simply beneath us. And moral dread comes out of the respect for the good opinion of others because we don't want to be known as somebody who does bad things. Although fear and dread sound like rather harsh terms in English, they're very powerful forces that are needed to support virtue. The Buddhist psychology of Abhidhamma analyzes all states in terms of their roots, their roots of greed, hate, and delusion, or non-greed, non-hate, and non-delusion. I like looking at the system of the Abhidhamma because when we see the roots, we can also see the link to the kama. We can steal out of greed because we just want something. We can steal out of hate because we want to hurt the person we're taking it from. Or we can steal, and that act of stealing can be strongly or weakly affected by delusion. But the act of stealing is said to never be associated with wisdom. If we understand that the act of stealing is wrong, then it may not have wisdom, but it has less delusion than stealing and not even knowing that stealing is wrong. But if a decision to steal is made with that full knowledge that actions have results, that it's wholesome, then we won't have so much delusion reinforcing the action. So we don't turn an act of stealing into a wholesome act by adding wisdom to it. It doesn't work that way. What happens instead is that there's a commitment to not steal, to keep the precepts, to act with restraint. And those actions of restraint are rooted in non-greed, non-hatred, and they arise as wholesome state. Non-delusion can be there, so they can be double-rooted, non-greed, non-hate, or they can be triple-rooted, non-greed, non-hate, and non-delusion. I think in order to successfully cultivate any of the precepts, we have to get away from the thought that something like stealing is something that only bad, awful, evil people do, and that we're beyond it. To strengthen virtue, we examine the roots of our actions to see, is that action affected by greed and hate? What is it that could, what mental factors could allow us to transgress the precept? And as long as we find any greed, hate, or delusion within our minds, we're vulnerable. So we have to know the quality of the mind, We know the mind of a thief is not an admirable mind. No one trusts a thief. You might wonder, well, maybe Robin Hood? Maybe he was a good guy? He took from the rich and gave to the poor? But according to Buddhist teachings, wrongly acquired wealth does not produce strong, wholesome fruit. The wealth that's wrongly acquired is tainted It's tainted by the unwholesome roots that generated it. And so though we might do good things with it, those good actions are not going to have the same strength and comic potency as wealth that was rightly attained, rightly acquired. Refraining from stealing is just one approach that we can use to refine our virtues and to reduce the greed and the fear in our communities and in our lives. Cultivating generosity also creates a potent force for joy and for peace. And when we work with our possessions, we work with both. We restrain the impulse to take what doesn't belong to us. And the flip side of it is to consciously and intentionally cultivate the spirit of generosity that shares, that finds joy in giving to others, that looks for a need and wants to fill it, that sees what we have and wants to share it. 
Although in different contexts our motivations and reasons for giving can be varied and mixed, we can purify our motivation, we can cultivate generosity, and we can learn to give in many different ways and many different contexts. One of the most powerful reasons for giving is to improve our own mind. Again, it may sound selfish, but it isn't. Often giving happens with some mixed emotions. We have different reasons for wanting to give in different contexts, sometimes out of obligation, sometimes out of generosity, sometimes because we want to establish a debt or a relationship. There's lots of different reasons for giving. Sometimes we think we should, and often it's mixed. But in the Nguttara Nikaya, there's a discourse that says that the most powerful reason for giving is to give in order to adorn or ornament our own mind. Which I think is an interesting teaching. We give because we recognize that the act of giving to another, in that act, we are simultaneously purifying our own mind of greed. We're motivated not only by the wish to share, not only by the wish to help others, but also by the wish to purify our own minds so that we do not live with the stain of miserliness or stinginess or selfishness. So we then undertake giving as a practice, a practice that improves the quality of our own minds. And this kind of giving is said to link the wholesome act of giving with a noble aspiration to develop the mind, to liberate the mind, to free the mind from all defilements. And in this case, most especially, defilements related to selfishness, to craving, to clinging, to greed. So we use the action to the act of giving to support the path of practice. Even very simple Foundational acts like refraining from stealing and cultivating generosity can prepare the mind. In fact, these are the conditions that contribute to realizing Nibbana. This is part of creating the conditions for the peace and ultimate release of awakening. It starts with the precepts, with simple actions. Not stealing and giving. So I'd like to open for some discussion about this topic. Um, some Marxist revolutionary said uh, property is theft, and um, I, you know, you you, you said um, that wealth rightfully gained is not stealing or something like that but wealth wrongfully gained is stealing but how do you distinguish between right and wrongfully acquired wealth yeah 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 so and it's also uh i mean like for example women earn more less than men do in our society for the same work which one which one is stealing and which one isn't yeah. You know, the Buddha didn't address all those questions. He lived in a society where there was even greater inequality <laughs> between the genders. And he lived in a society in which bonded servants and slavery was commonplace. So, so some of those teachings we have to reflect upon, see what the essence of the teaching is, and then adjust it to our situation. And I think we can, if we take that, those qualities, if we cultivate those qualities of hiri and otapa, of moral shame and moral dread, and we tune into them, we'll know what allows us to rest the mind easily. And then we'll, we, we can, that gives us self-respect. And we'll know what we don't want other people to see us doing. And those kinds of clues, I think, can really be very, very useful.
If we engage in work in a way that feels it feels really good not to just getting money like some people it's true some people will feel a thrill when they exploit somebody else or when they get more than they you know deserve from a, a transaction or when they are able to successfully take advantage of someone and i think there are inner cues that the quiet mind, that the peaceful mind, that the mind that has made a commitment to not steal, that mind will start to sense those cues and realize, no, that's, this isn't quite right. The mind doesn't settle. It's not quite right. Even if society doesn't say that it's absolutely wrong, even if it's not a, something that is you know, a, a crime, considered a crime, it maybe it, it's something we choose not to do. Please. Um, you started this talk um, talking a little bit about how, um, well, you read the actual uh, quote that says that we mustn't take what wasn't freely given. And you spoke briefly about um, things that aren't freely given as including also our bodies and certain mental constructs. Um, and to me, I've, I've often included, included in this precept uh, an understanding of not ta- taking only what's fr- freely given also in like an interpersonal um, um, aspects, uh, mm-hmm. only what's freely given by the people around me and also um, by myself to try to coerce myself less, to try to be more generous towards myself and take what's... Mm-hmm freely given by myself towards myself. So I've often treated this precept as more in, in line with, those kind of, with that kind of understanding. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that's maybe um, uh, an elaboration that's not really maybe precise. Um, because you treated, you mostly spoke about really objects and the actual yeah. act of stealing. So I'm just wondering if this, this kind of perception is, is you, you would say that it's the right way to view it. I think the actual precept is about objects. But I do think that as practitioners, it's an inspiration to refine our minds even more. Not impose upon somebody not take some more of somebody's time than they want to give us, to not impose upon them. You know, there's lots of ways that we manipulate to get things that we want. And we can, as you, as you say, if you work with it more in social ways or in interactive ways, we'll start to see the ways that we try and manipulate other people to get what we want, even if it's not in terms of things. And I think that's a really good thing to do is to refine the precept. When I see the contexts in the discourses about the precepts, I'd say for the most part they're really dealing with very basic, ordinary things, like not stealing your purse, you know, <laughs> not taking your car, you know, not so that we can live together. Remember also at, at the, in the Buddhist time, they didn't have the same kinds of security alarms that we have. They lived in villages. So now they didn't also have as many possessions. But I think this was related to possessions. But I really like the way what you're saying about refining it in with less material things. There's so many ways that we could we can use the precept and kind of get a handle on the basics of the possessions. And then we can use that as inspiration to start to see, well, how how does possessiveness work? How does the mind work on wanting? Are there things that we do we may not steal, but are there things that we do that manipulate to get, that try to exploit, that want um, something that doesn't, that, yeah. So I'm saying, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. I think it's good. I think it's good. I think the first thing to do is to make sure we're okay with the material things and then refine each precept. And it's true for all the precepts, I think. We have to make sure that like, we refine the basic level of the precept and then 
and then we, um, we get more subtle and subtle and subtle. Yeah, I think it's interesting too when the Buddha said, and what is not yours? And he basically said, all of experience. That's from a very, you know, way down the road towards enlightenment perspective. That there's nothing that we can actually possess. So from that perspective, there's nothing that we can possess. And yet, to realize that there's nothing that we can possess doesn't mean, oh, no, nothing, there's nothing that we can possess, so I'm just going to, I think I'm going to take that car home tonight. <laughs> yeah. So we both respect possessions and know that we can possess nothing. I feel that the way that I create wealth for myself depends uh, perhaps more strongly than, than otherwise in society on the greed of others. And I'm un- uncomfortable about that, even though it doesn't directly imply my greed. The fact that as part of what I do which I find in itself to be very contributing, that I'm very whole about, in a sense. Um, how it's financed and how it creates wealth for me really presses on people's greed buttons. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. We, we live in a, a complicated world, and what right livelihood is, we have to, uh, we have to think about. Wrong livelihood is very clear, in the Buddhist tradition. You know, it's killing, or acts of killing, like butchery or soldiering, traffic in poisons, traffic in um, human beings. So there's like really kind of coarse, obvious things that are wrong livelihood. So what, but what most people do isn't wrong livelihood. So it's not as extreme as wrong livelihood. But we have to consider what are those wholesome or unwholesome roots that it's feeding or that it's feeding upon. I think that's a very interesting thing. Very interesting thing. And is it possible to provide a service without excessively enhancing greed or manipulation? What do you think the Buddha would say if he were to live today about the um, demonstrations of the 99% against the uh, growing inequity between the rich and poor in, this, in our society? I honestly don't think the Buddha would have been aligned in any way. He talked about earning our our livelihood rightly. And in an agricultural society, that basically meant from the sweat of one's brow, which is not the way that we usually, most of us, earn our living. But there's an honesty and an integrity with which we can earn our living. But, the, but even at the Buddhist time, there were great disparities of wealth. The degree of poverty compared to the riches of some of his benefactors, like Anatapindaka, who is a very, very wealthy financier and merchant, and some of the kings. Yeah, and, and we don't see anything in the texts where there's a, an, a privileging of one over the other or a questioning of that social order. It's more about what is one's duty and how can one engage in that with, uh, without greed, hate, and delusion growing? How can we do our work and our duties in life so that greed, hate, and delusion diminish? Uh, often with this topic, um, the question comes up, well, what if I find a $5 bill on the sidewalk? You know, and there's, you know, people are coming and going, but I happen to be the one that sees it. Um, I have friends, I have a friend that when 
that occurs, she will take it, but then she donates it to some, you know, the next time she goes to meditation or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that is that a, a, a breach of the precept? It was not given, but there it is. If you see a $5 bill there, you pick it up and you put it in your pocket. <laughs> okay. I would say that's freely available. <laughs> but if you see a $5 bill as you're walking through a restaurant on the table, oh, <laughs> we know that that one belongs to somebody else as a tip or something like that. But no, I'd say yes. That's that's about as free a $5 bill as you can get. You can safely pick that one up. You're not stealing from anybody. The other topic that I have heard um, brought forward at this point is um, cheating on income tax. Ah, yes, yes. Yes, another area that we really have to be careful with. That's... Um, that kind of uh, treads on um, don't lie as well. Yeah. You have to be really careful about, you know, what it, what deductions we take. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.